Good morning. As we uh, continue our study on the Holy Spirit, we're going to, this morning, focus on the Spirit and Jesus Christ. Uh, We have heard how, and you've heard many times, how the Spirit was poured out uh, on the day of Pentecost. And uh, Keith talked last week about how we're in the new covenant of the Spirit and not the letter. Uh, So we've gone from Old Testament to New Testament. Sometimes we don't emphasize enough the Spirit's role in the very work of Christ itself. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to begin in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, page 855. If you want to use the Bible that's in the pew, it's the blue one, you can turn to that page, 855, Luke, chapter 1. And in each of these passages, obviously just note the the critical place the Holy Spirit plays in the work of Christ, the person of Christ. So we're familiar with this announcement uh, to Mary from the angel Gabriel. And he tells her in verses 30 and following that she's found favor. She will conceive and bear a son, call his name Jesus. Then Mary asks a pretty pertinent question, right? How will this be since I'm a virgin? You're you're talking nonsense here. How can this happen? And notice how the angel answers her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It is the Son of God because it is the Holy Spirit that comes upon her and brings about this wonderful birth. Then later in uh, chapter 2, We see in verse 40, this um, statement about Christ, verse 39, the return to Nazareth, if you're looking at uh, the ESV. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong Filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And later in verse 52, after Jesus appeared in the temple at about 12 years old and confounded the teachers, uh, demonstrated an incredible knowledge of and love for the Word of God. It says in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. And commentators point out that all of this, this development of growth, this conformity to the ways of God, this living out a a life of favor before God, was all because of the Holy Spirit that he had. John 3.34 says that he was given the Spirit without measure, and so from the beginning, he had the Holy Spirit without measure, 
and was able fully to live out this wonderful life of favor before God. Then at the time of the beginning of his ministry in chapter 3, verse 21. So we have this giving of the Spirit that enables him to grow and mature, uh, become a young man, all the while obedient to God in every respect. Verse 21 of chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And this is commonly regarded as the time he was equipped and anointed for his ministry. Because up to this point, there was no mention of ministry in any, any form. Not teaching, not miracles, nothing. Uh, here was the equipping for his particular role as Messiah and all that he would accomplish for his people. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And so we're to see that in the desert, he was full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, full of the Spirit, as he encountered the evil one there in the desert. And you can see the continuity of this when in verse 14, after the devil had departed from him, it says until an opportune time, verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And later in verse 18, as Jesus is speaking in his own hometown in Nazareth, he says that this verse is in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so this is Christ's own testimony as to the presence of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, the fact that the Spirit is upon him. The very reason he is able to preach is because of the anointing of the Spirit. Now, we won't turn there just for time, but when Jesus is, casts out a demon-oppressed man in Matthew chapter 12, uh, the Jewish leaders accuse him of siding with the devil himself. That is, he's able to cast out a demon because he's on the side of the demons. <clears throat> and Jesus has this to say about it. If I cast out demons, uh, then Satan is divided against himself. He's fighting against himself. Then he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And later he says, he warns them against blaspheming the Holy Spirit, indicating how much a part of the casting out of demons the Holy Spirit played. You are blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Because it is by the Spirit that I cast out these demons. You see the place of the Spirit in the very ministry of Christ. And then finally, if you'd like to turn with me to Numbers, I mean, sorry, Numbers, Hebrews. Sure, they sound alike. Uh, (laughs) Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Even to the point of his death, notice. We'll start with verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, speaking of Old Testament sacrifice, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He made his sacrifice through the eternal spirit. And we're to see that apart from that spirit, he could not have made that sacrifice. Let us pray. Oh Lord, bless us that we will have such a deeper understanding and uh, perhaps in a deeper appreciation of what the Spirit did in the very life of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that Spirit has given to us as well that we might live out lives that are pleasing to God. Oh, Lord, bless us that we may worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. My son, my brother-in-law, Tim Morrow, my sister Cheryl, Seven years my younger, married uh, Tim, and Tim's family has the largest privately held electrical contracting company in Birmingham, Alabama. His dad and uncle worked in the company, and finally uh, Tim has inherited that job, and even his son Taylor is working. It is definitely the family business. And a lot of interesting things happen along the way. A few years back when the, uh, the, the downturn was so bad in our economy, Tim was telling me that it just got ridiculous in bidding jobs. He said, for instance, one time a, an electrical contracting company, one of his uh, rivals, so to speak, uh, put in a bid on Friday and to the guy's horror... And at that time, people were underbidding, they were bidding so low because they, they, just anything to keep their workers working, anything to try to stay alive, right, as, as companies. And they were falling uh, like flies. And so he said, this guy puts in a bid, and to his horror, he realizes, I left out the labor on the bid. Like, all the labor, I left it out. He woke, woke up Monday morning found out that he didn't even get the bid. (laughs) Somebody had undercut him. That's how bad it was getting. Well, what's interesting, of course, in any any construction work is that you have the person who draws up the plans, the blueprints, forms all of this. Then you have someone who superintends the carrying out of that blueprint. And then you have those who are actually on the ground doing the work itself. So the kind of three stages of it, right? Three parts of it. And many uh, theologians have through the years said that this is kind of parallels. It's not a perfect illustration, but it parallels the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Of 
the Father are all things. He is the originator, the planner of everything that occurs in this world. Jesus Christ is the one who carries out it. You can see this in creation where the Father obviously is the creator of all things. But then we read in Hebrews 1 and John 1 and Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ was the creator. That through him all things were created. That didn't mean the Father didn't create, but you see that the Father created through the Son. But then we read in Genesis uh, 1 that the Spirit of God brooded over the waters. We read in Job and in uh, Psalms that it is the Spirit that gives life to all things. And so in that sense, uh, though everything is made through Christ, it seems like the hands-on Creator is the Holy Spirit Himself. So this is going to help give us some background as to why it is the Holy Spirit that plays such an important role in Christ's uh, earthly life. But I want to start by underscoring the fact that the Holy Spirit is the giver of all life and all gifts to mankind. The Holy Spirit is the giver of all life and all gifts to mankind. And so, as we've seen, Genesis, Job, and Psalms talk about the Spirit giving life. Uh, Everything has breath because of the Spirit. And then you read in Exodus 31, and many of you have seen this, uh, where it says that Bezalel uh, will be filled with the Spirit of God, so God says, Filled with the Spirit of God, with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting of stones, carving wood, to work in every craft. And then he says, I've given all men the ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. So not only the leader, but everybody involved under his uh, leadership. He is given this grace, these gifts. And so it would help us to see creation from a Trinitarian standpoint and not just uh, uh, the same viewpoint that you might have if you don't even believe in a Trinity. And you might ask yourself that question, do I see the work of the Spirit, not the Spirit of redemption, but the Spirit of creation in everything that I see? Let's just take the starlings of Rome, right? Ten million starlings. They say that the starlings have lived in the city of Rome for thousands of years, but they've really swollen in the last years. So there are ten million starlings. Every night before they roost, they come up into the air and begin doing their gorgeous swarm. They look like one organism. You can see this on YouTube if you haven't. You probably have seen it. And uh, one person writes, it almost seems like a giant silk ribbon blown by the wind, you know, as they, they, and so scientists have discovered that they used to think that it was almost telepathic, you know, that they were reading each other's minds somehow or whatever, because how could they have such uh, choreographed movement in the air like this? And they found out that actually each bird is responding to the bird next to it. In fact, they're operating in groups of seven. So each bird is keeping his eye on six other birds and responds to their movement. 
And you, the flow is caused by those tiny delays between uh, seeing a movement and responding to it. Gorgeous thing. But when you see that movement, you need to say, praise the Spirit of God for giving these birds this particular form of life. You're seeing the work of the Spirit. And again, I'm not saying redemptive work, but I'm saying the creational work of the Holy Spirit. And to me, that gives a wonderful intimacy uh, to see his life in this world. And you go from swarms of, of birds to swarms of fish, you know, the sardines or, or uh, jackfish or many, many others that swarm. And sometimes they're just in, they look like a tornado, right? Just going round and round and round. Celebrate the work of the Spirit, the one who gives life to all things. And so whether you're looking at a flamingo or a snow leopard or an emperor penguin or otter or some mollusk, some snail that makes this gorgeous piece of porcelain we call a seashell, right? Or you're looking at the bright turquoise of a blue morpho butterfly or a grove of orange trees or a bed of zinnias or live oak or a watermelon. Or then go to what mankind does in art and music and writing and architecture, building projects, large and small. Whether it's a car, a boat, a jet, a train, electricity, computer, smartphone. All exploration and scientific discovery and human endeavor, all the gifts which enable us to live in cities and thrive as cultures, this is from the Holy Spirit. We don't mean it in terms of redemption, but yes, He is involved in creation. He's the giver of all life. He's the hands-on God who brings all of these things to fruition and reality. So, he's the giver of all life and all gifts uh, to mankind, point number one, okay? Two, he's the giver of all spiritual life to Jesus Christ. The giver of all spiritual life to Jesus Christ. Abraham Kuyper has written this, God has so created human nature that without the Holy Spirit, it cannot have any virtue or holiness, Adam's original righteousness was the work and fruit of the Holy Spirit as truly as the new life in the regenerate is today. So even Adam was holy originally because he had the Holy Spirit. Now, he abandoned that, and the Holy Spirit left him in that sense. But this was a part of his life, and that's why as the new Adam Christ would be so endowed with the Holy Spirit because he's the new Adam that doesn't abandon the Spirit but fully manifests the life of the Spirit in his life. And so Jesus, since he was not dead in sin as we are, he was born possessed of the life of God. And it was impossible for his human nature to be a single moment without the Holy Spirit. And so he had the Spirit without measure and no resistance in his nature to it as there is in us. And so there is this perfect complement, this perfect giving of life uh, from the Holy Spirit to Christ. And so what's odd about this for us is you think, well, wait a minute. He was the son of God. He was God and man. But it's very obvious 
because of the necessity of the Spirit and the underscoring of the importance of the Spirit that even the, the God the Son communicated his life to the, the humanity of Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. And apart from that, he would not have known the life of God. So all life came to him by the Holy Spirit, even as all life comes to any person by the Holy Spirit, both physical life and spiritual life. And so his uh, right use of his faculties, his exercise of holiness in every area of his life, this was all due to the influence of of the Holy Spirit who was given without measure to the Son of God. And so, as it says in Luke 2.40, Kuiper also says, this is the passage that speaks of Christ growing in favor. It says, this passage proves that we must ascribe to the Spirit all the progress in Christ's mental and spiritual development and all his advancement in knowledge and holiness. And then, of course, he is equipped by the Holy Spirit in this special way at the baptism. He's equipped to carry out his work as a mediator. And it's interesting that the very word Messiah brings together the whole of the Trinity. Because there must be one who is anointed, there must be one who does the anointing, and then there must be the anointment itself, and that's the Holy Spirit. So even the word Messiah speaks of Trinitarian relationship. And in every act of our Lord Jesus as a mediator, he was acting by the power of the Holy Spirit. Smeaton, a a Presbyterian uh, scholar of the 19th century, wrote this, the task assigned to the Spirit and carried out by him in all respects was to anoint and equip the mediator for the duties of that servant's place which he was abased to fill. And so Christ had no ability in his human nature to accomplish the work of the Messiah without the constant operation and powerful leading of the Holy Spirit. That's fascinating. And so in the temptation itself, Jesus would not have gone into the desert except that the Spirit led him, except that he was full of the Spirit. And he would not have, he would not have resisted uh, Satan apart from the guiding and helping him to overcome the temptations by the Holy Spirit, giving him strength and He relied completely as a perfect man. He relied completely on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to resist evil. We saw that in Matthew 12 where Jesus says, What you're seeing done in terms of the casting out of demons, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you attribute this to Satan, you're blaspheming the Spirit's work. He could have just said, You're blaspheming me, right? No, I'm doing this. I'm the one. No, he points to the Holy Spirit as the one who is accomplishing this work. I cast them out by the Spirit. And so uh, Peter can proclaim this in Acts chapter 10. 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How was God with him? He was with him because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And, of course, this continued throughout his life so that he was inflamed with a love for God and a zeal for God's glory to move forward in spite of every hindrance and every pain and every difficulty to bring about the world's redemption. It was the Spirit that fitted him for this, uh, this work. And uh, again, here's Kuiper saying, In a word, the Holy Spirit filled his mind with the unflagging zeal and love which com- helped him to complete the sacrifice. No one compelled him to do that, but he was enabled and given the desire to say, I delight to do your will and to take that body to himself and to accomplish that work uh, by the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. And so even in his suffering, it was the Holy Spirit that sustained him and comforted him so that he was not overwhelmed so that when he faced such severe sorrow and the abandonment of all of his friends, it was the Holy Spirit that sustained him and enabled him to continue to, to, that, to make that sacrifice. And finally, Kuiper writes this, His self-emptying was not a single loss or bereavement, but a growing poorer and poorer until at last nothing was left him but a piece of ground where he could weep and a cross whereon he could die. He renounced all that heart and flesh hold dear until without a friend or brother, without one tone of love, amid mocking laughter of his slanders, he gave up his spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit we read in uh, Hebrews 9.14. He made that sacrifice, that willing sacrifice, because of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So we owe our salvation, not just to an external act, but we owe our salvation to the very heart that Christ brought to this task. The very heart of love and devotion to God that was perfect in its trust and obedience Perfect in his zeal for God and his love for us. He was enabled to do that by the Holy Spirit. Not just to make the sacrifice outwardly, but to make it inwardly. To be everything that he needed to be. The perfect, uh, the perfect sacrifice. The perfect unblemished lamb. Without the Spirit, he simply could not have done it. So, the Spirit gives all life in the world. The Spirit gives all life, uh, gave all life to our Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, He gives all spiritual life to the people of Christ. Gives all life to the world and all gifts to the world. He's the one who gave all life and spiritual strength to Christ. And obviously, He's the one who gives us all spiritual life and obedience. And of course you ask, if Christ needed it, and he was sinless, how much more do we, broken, hardened sinners who've been redeemed, how much more must we have the Holy Spirit 
as sinners, to live lives that are pleasing to God. And so when, it's, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, brothers and sisters, you need to see this as absolutely essential for your life. It's not just a little optional thing that you and I might do today or might not do today. We must be governed by the Spirit. We have no hope whatsoever. This was true of Christ. How much more of us? And so in Galatians 5, you'll say, walk in the Spirit so that you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, it is only by the Spirit that you can be rescued from the desires of the flesh. And children, I'll say this to you. If Jesus needed the indwelling Spirit as a boy to grow in obedience and kindness and love, how much more do you need it as well? But isn't it encouraging that Jesus depended on the Spirit? And you can depend on the Spirit. And the same Spirit that helped Jesus obey is a Spirit that helps you obey as well. And if, it, and if for Jesus, it, the Spirit was required that he resisted temptation, oh, brothers and sisters, are we praying? Are we asking the Spirit to guard us? to protect us, to enable us in the midst of our temptation, to be as our Lord Jesus, who trusted in the Spirit, who was full of the Spirit, and therefore resisted sin? Doesn't that call us to the same? And if it was the Spirit that enabled him to make that sacrifice of love, isn't it encouraging that that Spirit indwells us By the grace of Christ. And he will enable us. To live out a sacrificial love as well. To image this Christ. By the same spirit that enabled him to have a sacrifice of love. And so it underscores our weakness. But it's hopeful isn't it? It's hopeful. That the spirit who enabled Christ. Some theologian one time said. Jesus didn't cheat. You know, he was God the Son and God the Man, but he didn't cheat, so to speak. He depended on the Spirit even as we must depend on the Spirit. And that gives a continuity between his life and our life. Especially in that not only did he have the Spirit without measure, but he has a Spirit without measure so that he can pour it out freely upon the church. He has all authority in heaven and earth, so no one can stop him from effusing us, uh, effusing the Spirit upon his church. And, of course, if Jesus preached only by the Holy Spirit, how about us who are preachers and teachers to think ever that we could preach or teach Or let's just extend that to any form of ministry within the church. And of course, we we read so much of how the Spirit is the one who, who gives the gifts of the church. The Spirit is the one who brings unity to the church. Everything we have our whole life, we're a dwelling place of the Spirit. See, that's an encouragement. We're the very temple of that spirit who gives us life, who gives the gifts that bring us together, that form us and build us into an organism that maybe even looks like those beautiful birds sometimes, right? 
and the way we work together and the way we minister to each other and the way we flow into each other's lives and present a beautiful sign to this world that is so lost and torn. And I want to close in this life of uh, in talking about spiritual life with just a word about this, that the enablement of the Spirit in Christ's life did not mean that he did not suffer terribly in this world. We had seen some months back in Isaiah, last year actually, in Isaiah 49, this is the Messiah himself speaking, the, the exegesis is, is carefully done that uh, it, is, it is a word of Christ where he says, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. That even the Lord himself had at times a sense of laboring in vain. Spending his strength for nothing and vanity. And yet he was holy in that. He was perfect in that. He was not sinful in that. Not sinful in facing the realities and the confusion of this broken world. We read in Hebrews 5, 7 that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He said to his disciples that night before he died, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. He's not speaking in hyperbole. He said, my, the fabric of my being is about to crumble. I'm sorrowful and I'm about to die. Watch with me, pray with me. We read, of course, in Luke 22 that drops of blood came from his forehead. And so the writer of Hebrews says, he himself has suffered when tempted. Suffered when tempted. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In every respect has been tempted as we are suffering in his temptation. And as you're being transformed into the image of Christ, you may experience mental and emotional and physical suffering of many kinds. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's easy for us to just simply dismiss that and say, well, that meant he is forsaken of God. True. We know that he was forsaken. He was separated from God. But don't lose this fact that he's quoting Psalm 22. He's entering into the very life of the psalmist who was himself saying, Lord, why have you forsaken me? I don't get it. I'm confused, I'm lost, I can't see my way out, and I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Don't let that neat little thing that, well, he was truly abandoned, etc., let that destroy this identity he had with his people, earing into our confusion. Have I spent my strength for nothing? What is this all about? Even then, he was holy and pure and good and submissive to his father. Because he knew the father is faithful and yet everything looked like his father wasn't faithful. And yet he still trusted his father as he cried out to him. His humanity, as one said, could not help but shrink from the terrible suffering he was facing. 
And so some people may struggle with depression and anxiety their whole lives. And even in, with medicine, there can be tremendous inner turmoil and suffering that people endure for years. Being conformed to Christ doesn't exclude this anguish. It embraces that anguish, you see. Doesn't mean that you're not a believer. Your form of trusting and obeying God may look different. This does not mean that Christ rejects you because of that anguish. He identifies with your anguish. He sympathizes with your anguish. He enables you to walk with God by the Spirit and manifest His character in the midst of it. You see, this the, the enablement of the Spirit embraces every aspect of your struggle and pain as an individual, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological. The Lord Jesus was enabled in His anguish by the Spirit. You, you will be enabled in your anguish by the Holy Spirit. Praise God that we have such a Savior who's given His Spirit freely to His people. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise Your great name that You became man and that, Lord, in the work of the triune God, The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit equipped the Son and sustained the Son and enabled the Son to obey from childhood throughout the whole of His ministry and even in death itself. Oh, praise you, great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for what you have done, united to accomplish this work. And now that exalted Son over all authority in heaven and earth, has poured out that spirit as the prize that he has won for his people so that our being identified with him means that we begin to partake of that spirit as well. And one day, we will fully know that spirit. We will fully be owned by that spirit. As Paul even says, our bodies will be owned in a new way in that day because now our bodies are so natural, then they will be spiritual. Oh, we praise you, Lord, that our final destiny is the full conformity to the likeness of Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit unhindered to beautifies our whole being forever and ever. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.